Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about right reasons. from the introduction alone, for anyone who's listened to Inappropriate Conversations number 216, released in the month of June, I am following through with what I said I might do. I had looked through some of my filing cabinets, going through information, probably searching for you know things related to a couple of trips I took during the summer, and found a few essays that I can remember telling myself in the very beginning of the uh, planning for an Inappropriate Conversations podcast This would be 2010, who knows, maybe even 2009, because it was part of the planning stages, telling myself, yeah, you're never really going to get to the place where you could go there and share anything from these particular essays. It's not that I'm at all shy about pulling material from my past, even the deep and distant past, and bringing it forward for further examination. It just it didn't seem like this was the right material to share, and who knows, sharing it may reveal to me that I was right all along. It's a chance I've decided that I'm willing to take. The biggest reason that I think I'm comfortable taking this chance, covering some of this material, is that it has occurred to me that the necessary background information that I thought would obviously be a problem to going into 25 pages of information shared between a male and female friend over the course of their high school, college, and post-college years, well, you wouldn't have the background. But as I look at past inappropriate conversations, pulled up the index that I've managed from the very beginning of this show, I've taken the time to isolate, at least from a planning perspective, what the show topics and dates were going back to the very beginning. And as I think I go into an introduction here, I want to just say up front, this one is going to be an episode with a couple of readings, a couple of essay readings, in fact, one called Half a Person from May of 2000. And one going back to March of 1988, and probably even before then, called Right Reasons. Uh, I will break them up with a quick clip from one of my favorite podcasts, and probably some promotion just to break up the two topic points. And who knows, I may even start this thing off with an introduction from a clip from one of those podcasts. And um, the reason for that would be that I'm going to participate this year in Pride 48 in New Orleans, And one of the things I'm going to get from going to New Orleans this year that I didn't get last year is a chance to see a live recording of Pod as my co-pilot. Circumstances interrupted their participation last year, but this year they're also planning to be in New Orleans for the Podcast Expo. It's at the Holiday Inn Superdome, uh, Friday, August 16th through Sunday, August 18th, is when the uh, live streaming podcast will occur. For a lot of people, myself included, there'll be a few dates on either side of that as well. And a chance to, once again, after probably five years or so, going all the way back to uh, the Podcast Expo in Las Vegas, 2015, uh, be able to shake some hands and re-greet some old friends. Because it is still probably true, especially from a Pride 48 perspective, that the first show that I download when I see it and one of the first shows that I listen to when I know it's available on streams is Greetings from Nowhere. But Greetings from Nowhere, like me, I can't point fingers, is more of a monthly release schedule these days, and Pod is My Copilot has perhaps miraculously, at least it seems like uh, a very big commitment to me, 
has kept up a more or less weekly schedule. And it is from a weekly perspective, the podcast that goes from available on the stream to downloaded to playing in my headphones or over the phone speaker as quickly as possible. So one of the things I'm going to use to create a bit of a pivot into the topic today is a quip from the most recent live podcast of Pod is My Copilot. Pride48 at pride48.com does a couple of events a year, almost every year. One of them is a uh, virtual June live streaming event. And the other one is this in-person face-to-face event coming up August 16th in, uh, in this year in New Orleans. But in the most recent June live streaming podcast of Pod is My Copilot, they sort of in some ways spoke to this issue. If they've got the positive side of the story, I may be offering today the negative cautionary tale. But first, the background information. I've said that maybe over 15 or 16 episodes, and it's probably much more than that, I've referred to the key figures that I'm going to mention in essay form today. I'm going to introduce them from a more recent perspective and half a person, and then I'm going to dive in, eavesdropping almost, into a lengthy conversation between me and one of those friends, and it's a conversation that includes a lot of talk about the other friends. So, right reasons. We'll decide at the end whether doing this particular reading was a right idea or not, but that's what it's called. If you wanted to look back in past Inappropriate Conversations shows, despite the fact that Inappropriate Conversations is available on a variety of podcatchers, uh, it's on iTunes, uh, categorized on um, both uh, news, politics, and also like faith and spirituality. It's kind of been, it's a show that does both, so it can be found in both ways. The best way, though, besides that or Stitcher or anything else, is to look us, uh, look us up on inappropriateconversations.org. That website has a monthly directory that goes all the way back to the beginning. Every show I've ever recorded is still posted there, including the ones early on with highly suspect sound quality, and including the one I'm going to mention first. I've been talking about these people, these friendships, this type of friendship relationship from the very beginning. In Inappropriate Conversations too. I introduced the concept of different drummer that has stuck with me throughout the rest of these inappropriate conversations formatted podcasts. And in the process of introducing the different drummer, I talked about my high school and college pseudonym, The Author, and that was inappropriate conversations too, providing an introduction to some of the material that I'll be, you know, hinting on. And in fact, some material I'm going to quote directly today goes back to, well, for one of a turn of phrase, the authorship of The Author. That's one intro. Obviously, the other intro is the one that was just recorded last time. I ended that with a reading of the short story, Third Person. That was pretty much a fictionalized account of the things I'm going to address today in nonfiction form. What does it mean to kind of deal with uh, the disillusion, the slow and unintentional disillusion over time of a friendship or friendships, plural? But what are these friendships made of? Uh, if I'm dropping names, what, what's the rest of the story? Well, Inappropriate Conversations number uh, 44 was released in January of 2011. Uh, it dealt with some of the background material, as did the Different Drummer segment in March of that year, Inappropriate Conversations 48. Four Things I Know or Types of Knowledge. The fictional TV character Joan Girardi was the different drummer, but I use that as a way of speaking to some of these other issues, including a person that I'm just going to refer to cryptically as Q. It's inappropriate Conversations 79 in 2012 in January and 80 in February of that year, back-to-back episodes, also dealing with background material very directly. And I've, I've cited Inappropriate Conversations 79 and 80 before as good direct background material. 
I'm not sure that they are better, though, than a more recent recording of Walk the Earth. Walk the Earth number 48, released in November of 2017, was ostensibly answering the question of whether people who want answers ask questions, but it's very much dealing with the same story covered under Revelation Weekend in Inappropriate Conversations 80. So between 2012 and 2017, some of the other mentions were a little bit less direct. There are a couple of exceptions. I'm going to refer directly to Inappropriate Conversations 90, Moments of Epiphany, in the Different Drummer segment, and bring Inappropriate Conversations 90 back full circle. Uh, Some of the stories told in, in that particular episode, released in May of 2012, were covered again in some detail in uh, Inappropriate Conversations number 118, that was April of 2013, answering the question of where would I be without God. And then throughout the way, just to cover these more quickly, uh, whether direct or indirect, there are less direct references to some of these people, friendships, and situations. Inappropriate Conversations number 120, Making Contact, was uh, May of 2013. Number 122 included a reading of the prose poem Disappear Here, and even the essay Past Tense refers to people like Q uh, mentioned here, and uh, Marcy as well. That was June of 2013. The Death of the Author, uh, from the same short story collection as Third Person, shared in the last Inappropriate Conversations recording, that was, I believe, late May of 2014. Murdering Friendship, Focused on the friendship of boys, Inappropriate Conversations number 182, released in April of 2016. But certainly by talking about the way friendships of boys are interrupted by homophobia, I did mention my friendships with women being a different thing, but informative in their own way. Finally, one of the Walk the Earth episodes was a little bit informative, too. I believe I made some mention when talking about whether pilgrimage is about a sacred place, the historical past, or just my own individual walk. Uh, Walk the Earth number 40 was released, I believe, August of 2016, late August, perhaps early September in that time frame. And the Walk the Earth question dealing with the the sacred spaces, sacred places, I'm pretty sure I dealt with that on a personal level, too, and talked about revisiting the actual place where things like Revelation Weekend occurred. And then, uh, just to drop a couple names, um, John Pavlovitz was the different drummer on number 192, January 2017. By listing 100 unique things about myself, obviously intersexual friendship is a big one of those. And in dealing with the death of my mother, Inappropriate Conversations number 195, telling your stories before it's too late, that was March of 2017, It obviously helped me deal with some of the direct challenges that I was dealing with in the fact that my, not just my mother, but frankly, an entire generation of people older than me has rejected even the possibility of the kind of friendships that I'm going to describe today. For at least two years, I've had on the list to talk about the impact and importance of intersexual friendship to me, and maybe some more information about why I think of these and deal with these under the auspices of being sacred friendship or sacred history. It's just now that I'm finally getting around to doing it, and in some ways, I've needed to force myself to do it. But it's so important, because as I was listening to that live podcast, uh, the 500th episode of Pod is My Copilot, there was a quick moment in time where I think Taylor expressed perfectly what the collateral is here. What's at risk? What benefits do you lose if friendships do indeed fade? 
honestly, my big fear, the one thing that I love doing the show with both of you, mm-hmm. my one fear would be that Rodan and I wouldn't be as close as we are now. Yeah, that, because that's, I that think was my that, thing too, yeah. Because well, because because you and I share a brain, Rodan. Um, yeah. Because I think that with him living as far away and moving all over yeah. the place, it's very easy for people to disappear out of your lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that this has forced he and I just to stay in touch. But I think that over time, we have definitely gotten August birds crapping, insects biting, the heat of summer. Children bitching. Summer brides rethinking their weddings. The overgrowth of the lawns. Now, what have we forgotten? I'll tell you what you've forgotten. You've forgotten the Pride 48 Expo. Don't miss out on New Orleans 2019. All your favorite little shows live. August 16th through the 18th. Live from New Orleans, Louisiana. Come one, come all, or join in the chat room. Go to Pride48.com for more information. Big Fatty, I think that went really well. Certainly totally original, that's for sure. Half a Person. Ghost written for the author in May of 2000 because the author, as a pseudonym, was long dead by this time. Like most surrealists, I have led most of my life by wandering between two worlds. Call them real and surreal, conscious and subconscious, whatever you like. Who populates the real world? An obvious answer, my wife, my children, my co-workers, extended families, neighbors, not necessarily friends. Based upon my belief in archetypal phenomenological relationships, some of my friends live for me in the surreal world. It's a world where anima and animus dictate the course of human relationships rather than events rooted in time and place. For a time, these friends live in both worlds. That said, interacting with me in both a real and surreal context does not make my experience of friendship any more tangible. Some may find this surprising. Fair enough. But it clarifies what I mean when I say that I can still have a personal relationship with someone I haven't seen in more than a dozen years. This essay was written in the year 2000, so add almost 19 to that dozen, and you get a sense of why I'm feeling the burden of the decades today. Who are these friends? Well, allow me to drop a few significant names, or pseudonyms. Spider, Janet, Q, Sean, and Marcy. I could limit myself to such a list. Would I lie to myself by saying that I think about such and such a person every day of my life? These are the people who benefit from the fib. Truth notwithstanding, these are the people in the surreal world whom I allow to influence my actions. Marcy is my conduit to the real world. Her voice tells me things like, Don't forget Cheryl. Remember Cheryl. Marcy whispered those words about my future wife into my ear on the night I graduated from high school. She was saying so many things at the same time. In her way, she was telling me, don't drive drunk, and don't make a fool of yourself by addressing an inquisition of people who don't really care about you. I didn't adequately heed either of those warnings. I did, however, stick closely to her primary message. 
Don't lose your anchor in the real world while exploring the fickle, tempestuous seas of subconscious Jungian shadows. All right, Marcy would never have annotated her statement in such a manner, but still that is what she said. Sean is my connection to the real world. I'm ashamed to say this, but I could not pick up the phone tomorrow and contact any of my friends from the surreal world, except Sean. At times, our contact is little more than Christmas cards and change of address forms. We've engaged in that contact, though. Marcy may point me in the direction of a real-world anchor, but Sean is such an anchor. At no point in my life has Sean fully given me the benefit of the doubt. It's not that she distrusts me. She always challenges me in spite of her trust. Sean has asked the right questions, often enough at the right times, and that has made a great contribution. Among the people Sean has asked me questions about is Q. I should not think about Q every day, even though, as I've confessed, I actually don't. Part of me doubts that I should keep telling myself that I do. My relationship with Q was a total failure. Not only did I fail as a friend, I failed as an acquaintance, a classmate, perhaps even as a human being. If her behavior and our passage through time together was unacceptable, mine was even worse as a strong contributor to her shortcomings. From an animatic perspective, I'm drawn to the view of her as the one who got away without all the typical cliches. She actually functions as more of a shadow than an anima. Shadow is the role Sean was probably born to play, and Sean has tried to play it actively. Q, however, plays a shadow more effectively in a fully passive manner. Because of what she did not do, respond, for example, Q will always be a shadow. Inappropriate Conversations number 79 has this backstory from January 2011. I probably think about Janet more than anyone else in the surreal world. She is my guardian angel. At a time in my life when I perhaps most needed direction, Janet befriended me in the strangest way. She befriended me by allowing me to befriend her. Janet responded in a manner that Q could not. Was she simply a stronger person? Perhaps. I would say that my less developed sense of self at the time, two years earlier, required a smaller and less frightening commitment as well. Janet taught me two very important things, and I know I'm repeating myself. I'm repeating myself from the Inappropriate Conversations episodes I mentioned in the intro, in fact. I call them Janet Rules. Number one, never use intoxication as an escape from anger or depression. Celebration is one thing. Hiding from your troubles is quite another. Hidden in Janet's rule was an understanding that your troubles, no matter how unpleasant, represent you at that moment. To strangle them in denial is to strangle a part of yourself that desperately needs all the focus, breath, and attention you can possibly provide. Janet Rule 2. Avoid any sexually motivated contact with animatic, intersexual friends. These friendships cannot function if they are not kept sacred, so to speak. Janet was not referring to acquaintances or any other casual relationships. With friends, though, friends, she taught me, without explicitly articulating, that I must treat these friends in a manner consistent with my treatment of male friends as a heterosexual man. Janet's rules have made all the difference on a number of occasions. This leaves Spider. If everything I have said I feel for Spider is true, then why does she live only in the surreal world? If I knew the answer to that question, I would be writing a different essay. Where Q was a total failure, Spider was a total success. Beyond Janet's rules, Sean's questions, Marcy's warnings, 
Spider was able to look into the mirror and see what I saw. Maybe she doesn't live in the real world because she was frightened by what she saw. Maybe she played her role and moved on. Others, like Marcy and Janet, said what needed to be said and moved on. The same could be true of Spider. Perhaps she heard what I needed her to hear and moved on. For me, the point of all this is not the lack of contact with these very important people. It's not that some of the friends I miss most have absolutely moved on away from me. To the contrary, they still live with me every day in this surreal world. Maybe when I say to them, I think about you every day, they never hear it, and therefore never answer. I still say it. When I think about sacred history of the friends in my life, I've lately developed enough experience and perspective to be to develop something of a flowchart. From a conversation at Essay Exchange with Sean, I start by dividing the world into two groups. People who could provide sexual opportunities and people who do not. Women, though not all women, populate the opportunity group. Some hold the possibility of mutual attraction, and we could call them opportunity yes, and some don't. Call them opportunity no. The pinnacle of opportunity yes, and therefore really the entire opportunity group, if I'm honest about it, is Cheryl. She is my wife, the love of my life, and the person my friend Marcy told me to marry. <laughs> not that I needed her advice, but Marcy did not take the inevitability of my marriage proposal plan as much for granted as everyone else in the world seemed to do. Men dominate the friends group. The reason is obvious. As a heterosexual male, all men in the, are in the friends group, and almost all women are in the other group. In a way, the definition of male heterosexuality is that women could provide sexual opportunity where men don't. Where are the exceptions, though? The exceptions come from the surreal world. They are the anima of my subconscious. Their distinction, standing apart from the male-dominated group of friends, is what makes them significant. Some of them cherish this distinction, like Spider. Some are perhaps unaware of it, like Marcy. We can, for the sake of argument, declare that three kinds of intersexual friends compose these exceptions. I'm going to use my names and call them Janet's, Sean's, and Q's. By what means have they been separated from the opportunity group in the first place? Janet's second rule is the answer, but the reasoning is far from obvious. Rather than a pure animatic relationship, Janet may have been recommending something altogether different. I would have to concede that Janet may have instructed that intersexual friends move only from opportunity yes as a group to opportunity no as a group. In my heart, though, I don't think that answer is on target. I found Janet sexually attractive. Anyone who knew her would dismiss that statement as obvious. I doubt that she found me sexually attractive. For reasons additional to that, we were not remotely compatible. Draw the necessary inferences you need from words like fraternity, country club, and summer home. Although she was attractive, there was no mutual attraction. If the simple interpretation of Janet's rule is correct, then Janet was insisting that she be moved to the opportunity no group. But the reason I disagree with that answer is that Janet was already there. Our relationship had moved her to a different place. Janet made clear that the different place was not opportunity, yes, but it was a new and distinct reality, one at the time I had not experienced before. Janet helped create for me a surreal world where a select few women are part of the Friends group. And I mean Friends with a capital F. I'm sure it's too easy to say that Janet represents animatic friends who do not share my initial sexual attraction to them. 
It's equally simplistic to say that Sean represents intersexual friends for whom I didn't feel an initial sexual attraction. It is wrong, but I'm belaboring the point anyway. Sean would probably be in the Opportunity No group, without any element of friendship there if that was how it played out. While it would not be true of Q, I do not intend any insult by this observation. That would explain why Sean has continued to exist, maybe, in both surreal and real worlds. To cryptically refer to French author Alain Robegrier, there is no secret room reserved for Sean. Also, I think it's important to point out that Sean is not alone. While I don't want to name names from the real world, I will name Tina. The two have so much in common that I may forget which anecdotes belong to which persons as I grow senile with age. My point is that Sean represents only the name of a distinguished set of friends. Many of them would probably assign me to the same place, devoid of any secret rooms where the mind uses the sexual subconscious as a weapon against itself. That leaves Q waiting for a description. She is neither the source of a non-reciprocal, reflective attraction, nor is she otherwise part of the Opportunity No group. I think what was so frightening to Q is that she wasn't being dismissed from the realm of dating for reasons of incompatibility. She was unable to comprehend the true reason, why my personal interest in her had nothing to do with dating. For Q, and Spider like her, being considered a friend, as defined by Janet's rule, meant that a great instinctive sacrifice was being made. I believe that we could have dated. Marcy thought it was possible, at least enough to inspire her warning. For this particular type of friend, that possibility, the unspoken awareness that the person would be at least superficially part of the Opportunity Yes group, can be interpreted as a stunning commitment or a harsh dismissal. In the surreal world, the Q group represents the greatest possible commitment. In the real world, though, it may explain why I have not spoken to these great friends at all lately, whether I think about them every day or not. Actually, Inappropriate Conversations 90 is even a better backstory. It's related to the different drummer, Alan Parker. We'll get to him before we're done today. Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. Perhaps I shouldn't be amused at this, but maybe I am. That, half a person from the year 2000, is the short essay. The longer essay, Right Reasons, is part of an exchange of essays that has more pages than a hundred between me and my friend Sean, talking about this entire concept of intersexual friendships. Sean's bias, if I were to put it that way, was that she wanted to take what had been a long-standing, years-long friendship relationship and steer it toward matrimony. It wasn't working for her, and she was harmed. She was hurt emotionally by what she perceived as a rejection. I, on the other hand, was carefully on the other side of the fence, trying to make sure that I was doing everything I could to keep my friendships as sacred as I had been taught through experience that they needed to be, both to defend myself against any sort of harm that a broken friendship might try to do to my relationship with my wife, 
but more to protect the friendships for their own merits and their own benefits. I wrote an essay to Sean called Love and Contemporary Intersexual Friendship at some length in November 1986. I was still in college at the time, as I recall. She wrote a response to me, and it took almost a year and a half for me to get around to answering her back. In fact, what I ultimately did was a bit of a mess, enough so that when I sent her the typewritten pages, I started off with a preface. That's where we'll begin, from March 3rd, 1988. What? A preface? Well, I wanted to let you know what to expect. As we say on the copy desk, I'm going to dump my notebook. The phrase is a reference to bad writing, meaning just forming a composition from all your notes rather than paraphrasing, organizing, and writing tightly. At work, we have writers who always leave too little time for the actual work behind the computer terminal, and the result is 20-inch stories that really should be 10 inches long, and long quotations without paraphrasing. In short, dumping the notebook. Looking at my notes, it would take me far too long to organize a response to you. As a result... This will ramble. I'll jump from topic to topic, often backtracking. Who knows? I may even contradict myself. These things are to be expected when reading an emotional account. Telling an emotional side to my argument is my goal. So, take this as a warning. Throughout our relationship, I've been someone who, if nothing else, was sure of himself. At times, too sure. Well, not this time. Greg. Right Reasons since ninth grade, maybe earlier, I've had some form of notebook with me at all times. This habit formed with something I called the situation list in junior high school and early high school. For example, one of my earliest and most mature intersexual friends, Janet, was being slandered by my closest male friend's sister. Something named YBA moved into this situation list. I think you bitch Angela was the long form, which I never really used even though the situation was viewed as critical for more than a year, topping the list for as many months as any situation ever did, which may explain why I remember it so well. To prepare an essay response to your letter, I wanted to gather notes and prepare something formal, maybe use a Thomas Aquinas synthesis or something like that. Instead, what I have is a folder full of notes that hold no clear relation to each other except for their being mine. Also, they are emotional. I warned you that they may clash. Does this make some of the ideas I'll express wrong in some way? Not really. The contradictions between my thoughts are something like siblings. Yes, they fight with one another, mostly over trivial matters. Billy took my comb and won't give it back. Or Sherry keeps changing the channel so I can't watch the videos I like. These conflicting ideas I have are nevertheless family. While I may not be sure of myself within my own personal debates, these quarreling notions stand up for each other pretty diligently. Hey, I can steal my sister's comb and not give it back, but if you try it, I'll beat you up. So, Sean, welcome to the family. I hope you realize what an advantage you have over the other observers in my life. Unlike Spider's boyfriend, Paul, or even at times my own family, you have a clear view of my love for Cheryl. If this text puts her on the back burner for a while, as it may, I know you'll remember how much I love her. I've never had a second thought about marrying Cheryl... In fact, drifting further back in time, Cheryl is the first person in my life with whom I was confident I'd made a quality commitment with. A marriage takes as much commitment to breadth as it does to depth. Things like wiping up vomit and listening to the same dumb story again 
are, as I've said all along, equally important and valuable as sex, or what romanticists call love, Cheryl and I have just that, a marriage. Even if it seems that my feelings for friendships are unusually deep, remember that the difference is the breadth. Having established Cheryl as the best decision I've made in my life, here's another. Making a friendship commitment with Spider. When I wrote the essay, Love and Contemporary Intersexual Friendship to You in November of 1986, I didn't realize exactly who Spider would turn out to be. On the other hand, I had been having the distinct feeling since August that, as I'd worded it, I was on the verge of something triumphant. I knew it would involve intersexual friendship. I knew it would happen before graduation. In fact, I expected it to happen before December, and I was very disappointed at Thanksgiving. I knew I would wager enough on an experience like that that, in effect, it would either prove my theories right or prove them wrong. I believe that my relationship with her has proven my concepts quite right. If only for that reason, I told her last month that I believe that she and I had the greatest friendship in recorded human history. After all, once you get past Adam and Eve, men and women have done precious little that was different from approaching relationships from a wham-bam-thank-you-ma'am style to quote David Bowie, who surely was quoting someone else. The term I use comes from Carl Jung, the most significant psychologist in the, relation, in the generation following Sigmund Freud. From Jung, I borrow the concepts of anima and animus. Anima is the inner feminine part of every male soul. It also represents Jung's ideals for human context in a separate usage. Um, animus is the inner masculine part of every female soul. Spider and I have an animatic relationship because our souls mirror each other closely enough that a sacredness, and therefore an intersexual friendship, is possible. Young, if he agreed with me, which nobody knows, would say that she is an image projection of my soul. Likewise for her, for me, for her. She is not anima per se, but an avatar. Yet, in an effort to avoid interjecting even more rhetoric, I usually just say she is my anima. And already the scholarly side of my brain is in dissent. The animatic quality is what explains the spider dream, her skiing accident, other projections. There's a sense in which we are the same person, just like Sean and Sean's reflection in the mirror are the same thing. Because of this fact, it is not completely absurd that I can know if she's happy or sad, or even know what she thinks, without being in the same room. After all, Presuming your mirror has a reflection and has thoughts, surely you could see what those thoughts might be. I didn't bring any of this up in the essay I wrote to you last because of some discoveries of mine here being so new. Anyway, I wasn't thinking about the future when I wrote to you, and the present wasn't much to write about. I was telling you about the past. That's why that one was so rational, so clear. I'd spent years learning and understanding all that Janet, for example, had taught me without maybe realizing she even had something to teach. What Janet taught me can be boiled down to the two things I call Janet rules. First, we decided one night on the telephone that it's dangerous to get intoxicated during times of anger or depression. Second, Janet is the source of the rule against sexual contact or even sexual supposition within a friendship, within a sacred friendship. I once said something in a letter to her that I feared might be construed as an invitation of sorts, when I met her after school that day, I tried to make my intentions clear. But Janet refused to even let me say I only meant that as friends. She didn't want to hear it, and she didn't hear it. Her point, I think maybe it was her point, but maybe she didn't realize at the time she was making a point, even saying something like a disclaimer is not healthy for the friendship. 
I live by this rule faithfully as well. I never again offered a disclaimer to an intersexual friend. In addition, I never told Janet, who you may recall from earlier conversations, was one of the most attractive women to ever attend my high school, that I once had a wet dream about involving her uh, two years before we became friends. While assuring her from time to time that she wasn't getting fat, a ridiculous conversation to have in my opinion, I refrained from giving her advice like, your ass looks better in this pair of jeans than that skirt. And I never told her that some of the guys in the 8th grade social studies class we had, including me, tricked her into getting her to bend down for a long period of time so we could get a look down her dress. It just didn't make sense in the friendship. By dragging out this old sidebar, what I'm trying to show is that my previous essay skirted past the issues and problems arising from having a friendship with someone about whom you've had an intense sexual thought or two, because I, I had taken plenty of times to sort out right from wrong and understand how my relationship with Janet worked. The second Janet rule has much to do with it. And there's more to it than the fact that I didn't disrupt the friendship, a move that surely would have, you know, been awful. We would have made an awful couple. Even more significant is the fact that I didn't want to disrupt the friendship. Even if one of the guys had proven to me somehow that Janet and I would have had a culminating sexual experience at the expense of the friendship, for the first time in my life, I realized that the friendship was much more important and much harder to replace. After all, we were in high school. Boys had lists. They could have named a dozen girls who were arguably hotter than Janet. Yet at the same time, I didn't have another friend in the world like her. In short, I didn't have another person who was willing to befriend me whether it was socially forbidden or not. It was. I was in the band, and that was just my obvious defect. Spider and I forged a relationship that has developed into a level that makes the old Janet rules seem like long division. We're talking about new math here, so new in fact that the teachers have trouble teaching it. Yet, in the midst of an experience so new it gets confusing, there is a common ground. Here's a passage just pulled straight from my notes. On an emotional level, I'm probably going to have to answer questions that I don't even like to hear, much less address. The reason is Sean's interest in knowing the emotional side of things. It disturbs me to give any serious thought to the matters because they are only important because of what they don't mean. Hopefully I'll be able to make that clear. What I may have to say to give Sean the emotional background she needs to understand the kind of decision I've made with Spider. Would I fuck Spider? Callous question. And Sean surely wouldn't put it that way. But the answer is, yes, ceteris paribus. I mean, if you, if you take all the outside factors as being equal, meaning there is no Cheryl and there's never been a Janet rule and all that stuff, well, the answer is clearly yes. But that's just a possible world. There is no actual world. Sean asked me once, perhaps unwittingly, whether I'd engage in a borderline sexual activity with Janet. An unfair question, if only because of my first experiences when I met her. I told her no when I meant it. But I saw the question as reading, will you, rather than would you. Would I fuck Janet, ceteris paribus? You bet. You know, if, if uh, consensually, then perhaps repeatedly. But I meant that no when I answered Sean, and I told the truth. Likewise, if she had asked the same question about Spider, relative to an actual world, I'd tell her the same no again more quickly, decisively, and honestly. The reason? A commitment. Love. Let's just say this. I don't need something as primitive as sex as an excuse for loving somebody. In high school, I do remember thinking, not with Janet, now I have a friendship, so what can I maybe make, can I maybe make something more out of this? 
I'm embarrassed by the admission from my past because I see the thought is so ugly. I deeply regret any pain I might have caused somebody like uh, Lisa in high school who wanted and needed a real friend. The truth, which I first saw during my senior year in high school through Q, although she didn't see it, is that offering someone brotherhood is a much stronger distinctive statement than offering her something her fingers might well accomplish in a world where I no longer existed. Spider read the journal. <laughs> to you, that may seem nothing more than a simple sentence. To the little man on my shoulder, that reads more like, What? Spider read the journal? Are you fucking out of your mind? You see, even if she pulled out her best Janet rule faithfulness and adamantly refused to read between the lines, the fact that she is objectively sexually attractive had to be obvious. Why did I do it? Well, not because I was violating a Janet rule. I mean, it became clear to me in March 1987 that Spider and I had reached such an interpersonal level that we had mirrored beyond any level that I had been to before. Janet rules read like they were inverted. Quoting from Different Drummer, the journal that I was writing at the time under the pseudonym The Author, in my dogmatic essay to Sean, I made it clear that non-filial contact is absolutely banned. Now I think, I think I should have been, more should have been said about filial contact. What Cheryl may not realize is that a distracting absence of physical contact violates the Janet rule just as clearly as non-filial contact does. Although this accusation is not very fair to Cheryl, since we haven't talked about it. Black Thursday has been discussed adequately regarding the hand-holding, kiss on the wrist, etc. Strangely, nothing was said about hugging her on the restroom floor when she was freaking out the worst, not to mention holding her in Paul's car and in the parking lot. The reason there that no comment has been made is that the action was so clearly brotherly. It was above even the suspicion of the little man on my shoulder, who was always an asshole about stuff like that. I guess I thought of it on Friday night, driving down the highway, because I was once again confronted with the problem of ending a conversation with her. Let's face it, combination of Irish-French-Italian makes a physically-oriented person. Kerr, a guy with whom I'm not that close, he and I end our conversations with handshakes or high-fives or something. Not unusual. Not weird. Therefore, some physical contact at the end of a meeting with a best friend could not be considered unnatural. Plus, as I've said before... The problem posed by the Janet rule is the thwarting of expectations and the casting of a doubt. Thus, to be afraid to shake someone's hand or hug or kiss before saying goodbye could be just as dangerous as wanting to kiss her. Luckily, I don't know how, that, how dangerous that latter feels because I don't feel that way. But I can think of a situation where a kiss on the cheek might be necessary and I would be very disappointed if I failed to do what should be done because of an unfounded fear. Spider and I are close enough now that the rules are different. Before, even hugging her when it was necessary might have landed one of us in chains, proverbially speaking. Now I feel like I would cut myself to bits if I failed to be her friend physically if she needed such brotherly love. This is new ground for me. I don't recall ever feeling so close to a friend that the Janet rules became inverted in this manner. That was written March 17th, 1987. Clarification. Black Thursday was February 19th, 1987. To celebrate a common friend's birthday, Spider, her Paul, Cheryl, and I were drinking with this other couple. Before anyone knew it, Cheryl and Spider had inadvertently drunk a lethal amount of alcohol. Two Skylab fallouts each, racing to see who could finish first. Cheryl ended up badly drunk and badly hungover. Spider lost consciousness. Trying to keep her revived, she kept fading in and out. 
I, all of us were gathered in the room trying to get her to respond. I was the only person she'd respond to. Whether Paul liked it or not, he faced for a moment the fact that she trusted me more than him. But Paul couldn't deal with it, and I know because he never had the courage to ask me what this friendship thing was all about, and I know he wanted to know. Of course, I may have not had the perfect answer to Paul's question if he'd asked. I guess what I'm trying to say reflects the reason I might struggle while giving a definition to someone like Paul. The relationship between Spider and me has stepped far beyond the level of any I've ever heard of. And it isn't as simple as saying that she is the same as my friendship with Janet. The visions aren't even comparable to the ones that troubled me while trying and failing to form a friendship with Q during my senior year in high school. This relationship has traveled into uncharted waters, so to speak. Earlier in the year, I praised that as a major development. It was. For the first time since my high school setback regarding Q, I finally got back to the level of understanding I had reached without freaking out. I even broke new ice and gained a deeper understanding of what love is really made of. However, I don't know what to expect from this new relationship. Sometimes, all my experience has to offer me as a warning. Be afraid. Most of this comes from Q. I was genuinely inspired to get involved in her life. I had a platonic insight into the problem she was having during her senior year, and that made it difficult to accept being shunned and played games with. Also, my closest male friend in high school contributes to my hesitancy because of how quickly he backed out of my life when I had a legitimate problem. Don't get me wrong, he was a good friend, and I still care about him. Nevertheless, the relationship operated at his, at his convenience. For the most part, after April of 1982, I was the one who called, we went to his place, we mostly did what he wanted, and above all, it was never about anything serious. In spite of this fear I have, I want to make clear that it does not involve what I would call psychosexual nightmares. An example of a psychosexual nightmare, uh, one that would be easy to relate to, would be, as you put it, quote, realizing a sexual attraction, unquote, for Spider. I mean, to suddenly come to the conclusion that our entire relationship was formed around misplaced lust on my part would be horrifying. At the same time, it would destroy my entire belief system about friendship, and it would mean that I passed up a divinely inspired sexual opportunity. Now, by referring to the divine, I'm not arrogantly suggesting that a sexual opportunity would have been forthcoming. Rather, I'm saying that I received a clear suprasensory message, SSP rather than ESP, but a similar notion, to get involved in Spider's life. If that message was not about love and friendship, then it must have been about love and sex, meaning God told me to fuck her rather than telling me to be her friend. Needless to say, that situation has all the trappings of a nightmare. A wet dream would be another type of psycho psychosexual nightmare. I can't imagine how disturbing that would be, to be honest. I was disturbed enough about the dream that, of Janet that preceded the friendship by two years. Having an out-of-control dream like that in the midst of the friendship would be even more difficult to reconcile. Of course, something like a dream can happen, and my argument is that it doesn't mean anything. While I've already admitted that sexual thoughts about friends are disturbing, they really are equally funny because of how concurrently stupid and natural they are. I mean... Sometimes if you really miss somebody, and your subconscious tries to escape the loneliness rather than deal with it, part of your mind spends time entertaining the notion that this separation could have been avoided if only... whatever. The phenomenon explains why many same-sex friends spend time apart wondering whether they did something that made the other one angry. In much the same way, intersexual friendship is at risk to entertain the argument, well, what if we'd had sex? 
in your case, it gets it gets extended to, well, what if we got married? Separation is the vital test of any friendship, I suppose. How an intersexual friendship reacts is particularly vital to the relationship because it is much simpler for the mind to fall in the trap of deciding to take some sort of marital approach. After all, the subconscious might suggest at least married people live together, thereby eliminating separation. In my case, this type of psychosexual nightmare wasn't much of a problem because I immediately recognized the logical flaw. Marriage does not automatically eliminate separation. The schedule Cheryl and I keep by working different shifts has made that painfully clear. For these reasons, I can say authoritatively that my fears about being isolated from Spider truly have nothing to do with psychosexual nightmares. It's just been tough on me to adjust to not hearing from her as much as I'd like. First, I had to adjust to losing most of the empathy. After several months of knowing how she was feeling without having to ask, I actually got used to it. Although it was tough, suddenly getting depressed or joyful for no reason, only to find out later that the moods mirrored hers, I got kind of grew to depend upon it, expecting a form of presence. Adjusting to not knowing what she's feeling brought on a second disorientation. I ended up spending time wondering how she was, and I might have felt hurt a couple of times as a result. Maybe this won't make too much sense, but it's troubling to find out days or weeks later that something really bad happened to her, like marriage plans faltering, and knowing that I didn't know. Mostly this is just withdrawal. You could safely estimate that Spider and I spend an average of five hours a week talking or reading, writing to, with one another, all the way through that final semester of college. Problems that developed in either of our lives were discussed in lengthy detail. Now they come and go, often without any comment, or comments arriving long after they were needed. What this boils down to is questions about whether an animatic relationship retains its vitality at a distance. A few weeks ago, I asked myself whether I thought the future would force me into a more geographically suitable relationship with another person. I said it at the time, and I'll say it again. I hope not. I hope not both because I never want to think that Spider will become just another name on a Christmas card list, and because I believe my relationship with her is one of a kind. For solid reasons, I don't believe I'm ever going to find another anima so pure again, not someone who also considered me animus. Only Q has even a chance of being more anima of mine, but time and immaturity have clattered any analysis of what the percentage might actually have been. The bad deal isn't just the prospect of not finding one, it would be just as damning to me if I did find another friend like Spider. An impression that they grow on trees would lower the value I associate with the concept of soul. Yet, it's clear to me that from time to time the kind of commitment I hope for may not be reasonable. To some, it's not even proper. My mother, for example, asked Cheryl what I thought I was up to the last time I visited Spider. I guess I can't spend my life trying to be geographically close to a friend, regardless of her incontrovertible importance to me. And I can't ask anyone to do the same for me. You jump into the argument here, Sean. It seems to me that you're asking even more from Mark. Still, I don't know if I can criticize you without admitting that my depression has surely been unfair to Spider. Sometimes I just want to climb up on a small mountain and yell, It's not good enough. I think you feel the same thing, in, of course, a different regard. The big difference between us is that I'm not asking any individual to change. Rather than asking a person to commit to me for my sake, through friendship, I think she already has, I just want all of society to try a new direction. I'd like a little more tolerance and more understanding from people like my mother. 
if we really believe the stuff we hear about the danger posed by the withering family unit, then people should ideologically support my feelings for Spider, rather than viewing them with suspicion. She is as much my sister as my biological sister's. Family is made up of the people you love. There is more to it than biological relationships, and we all know this is true. Foster homes, for example, are more loving than the homes foster children may be pulled from in certain situations, just to use that kind of an example. In spite of the justifications I offer, what I want is just as selfish as what you want. Even though my logic will argue that my viewpoint is in the best interest of all society, that will not ensure that I'll win the argument. Here's the dilemma. I love her. I love her in a way few people understand. It's a new idea, a new religion. The intensity is at least equal to my relationship with my brother. Yet Spider and I do not have Thanksgiving football games to unite us in the future. My inability to get February 7th off at work pretty much nails the coffin on any hopes to celebrate sacred history this year. Sidebar. February 7th, 1987. Every year I intend to celebrate the date like I would the wedding anniversary or a birthday or Thanksgiving. Here's the story. By the way, that every year thing didn't pan out. During that week last year, I already knew that she was the anima because I realized she was the spider in my dream. At the time, I didn't know she knew she was in the dream. She also had unwittingly realized I was animus. She may not have described it using that term, but I didn't know that either. On Friday night, February 6th, Spider and I double-dated to a party uh, with Spider and another guy named Greg. She was dating him because she had given up on Paul. And not for the last time either. She's still giving Paul new chances and still giving up on Paul. All week, I kept joking with people that God was going to appear and give me a revelation early Saturday morning. While seeming to be making fun of Royal Roberts, I was actually trying to cover up the fact that I really was troubled and really did have a vision that something was going to happen at or after Friday's party. The day before, on Thursday, I had written a letter to Spider in an effort to tactfully let her know what I was, that I really, really cared without making her think something other than friendship was being proposed. In a way, because of the Q problem, it was easier for me to disarm Spider's natural defense mechanisms. But I didn't give her that letter, in spite of the meticulous writing process. So when the party started Friday night, I was still very unsure of myself. Once we left the crowd and returned to my place so the four of us could be alone and talk and relax, Greg started making inferences and even gestures that clearly communicated his desires to have sex. At one point, it even appeared that he wasn't too concerned about her willingness. Contemplating the worst because I hate bad surprises, I figured the situation at least presented the chance of a date rape, which would be bad ultimately for both Spider and Greg. The thought, although ultimately untrue, really scared me because I was able to put myself in her shoes and project the possible world. Aside from being attacked in and of itself, the most frightening thing was knowing that she wouldn't have had anyone to turn to. Her roommate was less and less responsive as the year went on. Obviously, she couldn't tell Paul she was attacked since it was on a date with this other guy. And I honestly didn't know whether I whether she would feel safe turning to me. At this horrible moment, 1.37 a.m. Saturday, February 7th, I suddenly felt what I can only call a divine sense of calm. I found myself in conversational prayer. I asked what I should do, and a voice said this, It's far better to say something that should not be said than not to say something that should be said. Not sure I understood. I asked, maybe aloud, what that meant. The answer, you should have given her the letter. 
I don't want to drag God into this without permission or anything, but I consider it a religious experience. There was also a happy ending. Greg went to the restroom. I moved over to Spider and started to ask her questions. Uh, what I spoke was pure gibberish, <laughs> and Cheryl looked at me like I was speaking in some tribal dialect. But Spider seemed to understand everything. Sex, she said. I don't want anything like that to happen with him tonight. We continued our conversation after Greg came back, but in a more generic way. At one point, while we were talking about psychology or something, she and Greg interrupted me and started going on and on about how, how they thought I was smart. To stop them from embarrassing me further, I just told them that I thought I learned a lot through relationships. I paraphrased an animatic relationship without using specific terms or examples by saying that it's possible to learn a great deal just through the people you love. Spider got this intense look on her face and said, You don't know how much I wish I was someone you loved like that. The rest, as they say, is history. Sacred history. We call this piece of that history Revelation Weekend. I spent a lot of time trying to reconcile why people find my relationship with her so hard to fathom, to accept. The relationship growing from such a fantastic story does not help. But there is a more fundamental misunderstanding involved. With Anima and Animus, you are talking about a soul-to-soul -soul relationship. If it were 100% Anima, as which Young would clearly call impossible, you would be talking about one person in the relationship. The two units would be the individual and the individual's soul, and vice versa. What this means is that for Spider and me, it's that, in a sense, we could be the same person. I know most people have no hope of understanding my point. But it explains why normal biological impulses are thwarted. Spider and I could be the same person, meaning I wouldn't do anything to hurt her any more than I would hurt myself, meaning she's not completely completely safe from abuse. It means we can visit each other, even alone with each other, not be up to anything. Nothing would go wrong. Because we are the same person, we can sleep in the same bed if the situation presented itself, and it wouldn't mean anything and nothing would happen. Maybe the little woman on your shoulder might suggest she is somehow unattractive, but the assertion's false. Even without defending the sexual tastes of Paul and that other Greg, I can nullify that argument by saying that you don't form friendships with people you consider unattractive. It's in the nature of loving relationships to recognize the beautiful in the other person. And if you want to get down and dirty about it, I think I once mentioned to an acquaintance before I even knew Spider personally at all that her lower torso made a compelling argument for oral sex. Months later, my opinion didn't change, but the argument was never made to persuade me. It hasn't. Back to the point. I don't think I'd have the same problem sleeping in the same bed with her that you had with Mark. I wouldn't do it for kicks. There would have to be a necessity. Still, it would not alter the relationship. Bear in mind that I'm taking a few things for granted here. For example, she would not sleep naked with me. Another example, uh, we wouldn't talk suggestively before sleeping. The point is, that's not something my friend would do. In addition to um, the sleeping example, we could eat the same meal, drink from the same drink, an, an intentional reference to Julie from the movie theater, by the way, or even finish each other's bubblegum. It wouldn't mean anything and nothing would happen. In a number of possible worlds, the seemingly impossible happens. We are the same person. Now, to cross-examine. I don't just know this because it is supposed to be obvious. It's not. And I haven't just thought about it gratuitously. First, God called the matter to my attention on February 7th, 1987. Second, previous situations have forced me to delve deeply into the psychology involved. 
Paul did it when he asked her in April when I wasn't around why I wouldn't want to marry her. Cheryl did it when she objected to the sexual content of some of my conversations with Spider, going all the way back to 1987. Spider also forced me to contemplate this same person phenomenon during Black Thursday, when she needed to use the restroom and to be helped into her bed because she was wasted beyond control. Paul was there, and he took care of the dirty work so I wouldn't. The maneuver bought me some important time to think, but he didn't take care of her because he was worried about my state of mind. In fact, he probably helped her as much out of jealous possessiveness as he did out of his love for her. Nevertheless, I could have taken her to the restroom as graphically as necessary and dressed her for bed and all without any problems. Why? We are the same person. My comprehensive justification doesn't comfort me as much as it should because the concepts are so scary. Not only are they completely foreign to most people, they are intimidating, possibly even to Spider. Sometimes I scare myself, and that is even worse because of something Janet taught me. Being scared is wrong. I have some quotes from your letter that I'd like to cite now before I directly answer some points you raised. We're just having a grand time here roaming from idea to idea to idea. Okay. About rejection. Your quote, A loss of self-love as far as one's looks and desirability becomes prominent. The thoughts are, I'm just not attractive enough for anybody. I wouldn't worry about this point a great deal. Look, if somebody loves you, which we agree ideally comes first, then you embody attractiveness through that love. One of the problems with starting a sexual relationship with a perceived friend is that the love he has for you may not be compatible with the sexual ideals he carries to help him find a marriage partner. To use Julie from the movie theater as an example, she couldn't have transformed our friendship into a lasting sexual relationship if she wanted to because she's just not my type. Ironically, Cheryl often complains about her looks, and it makes me wonder if she turned herself into some ideal of herself, too skinny, no substantial behind, she might not be my type anymore either. That's the reason I wouldn't use appearance as some sort of tragic flaw. About Mark, your quote, As far as he's concerned, our relationship can go on as it does for the rest of our lives, but he knows it wouldn't satisfy my lusty longings. Okay, to give you a perspective on how he might have felt when you told him what was on your mind... You might recall that dream situation between Julie and me. He may have felt bad and worry about you in the same way. Here's where your argument really beats me, though, Sean, quoting you. As I told him, right now in my life, I can't bear the thought of never getting to pick up and go on vacation or do anything with him anytime I want for the rest of my life. I'm afraid to be without him forever. I'm afraid to be without him forever. My essay, Love and Contemporary Intersexual Friendship, exploited our differences, not our similarities. My previous stance lacked that key dimension. There were other problems, primarily the assumption that homosexuality is morally objectionable as some sort of character flaw. It was an important part of my appeal to traditional thinkers, but it would be a liability in an argument with modern thinkers who could easily demonstrate that sexual preference is a morally neutral characteristic. Leaving that squabble aside... The emotional element remains a problem. I, too, am very uncomfortable with the notion that marriage and maturity may shut this friendship out in some way and isolate two people who need each other very much. I don't have any solutions at this time. However, I do have defenses which I'll present later. About me, Sean writing, God, Greg, one of these days all my dark secrets are going to be spilled to you and I don't know if I can handle it and all your opinions of my past days. 
I deeply respect the vulnerability you have shown to me, particularly in the most recent essay. I'm trying to let you know here how I feel when I find myself in doubt or lacking confidence the way you have been from time to time during our writings. Believe me, I'm not storing opinions about your life based upon our writings, even though I respond pointedly. Hopefully, before I wrap this up, I'll be able to set you more at ease about my opinions. Specifically regarding Mark, there are elements of my rhetoric to you from my first essay that I should tone down some. In a way, I've got some backtracking to do. About the letters, quote, Even though it took me forever to get this to you, I have thought about it almost every day, wanting to get thoughts on paper. They're not as potent as when I first thought them, but you get the general idea. Even if it takes you months to write a response to this, please do, wherever I am. I couldn't agree more. After all, it took me months to write a response. Likewise, I have thought about this often, times maybe too often. I especially hope my occasional brooding hasn't troubled Cheryl or, or even Spider much. How about some clinical responses to your letter, if I'm going to coin a phrase? As you can easily see, I'm not denying sexual feelings, or at least not sexual awareness. On the other hand, I've learned a lot from both bad experiences and good. From them, I've developed a code of sorts that has worked well and makes good ethical sense to me. As already mentioned, I cannot take all the credit. Janet, for example, takes a byline as the formulator of the core rules. Others contributed many in unusual ways. For example, I mentioned a person named Lisa earlier in the letter, and I believe she's a new character in the story. I don't remember mentioning her to you before. Well, during the same year I was exercising a textbook, Friendship with Janet, I was breaking all of those new rules with another person who wanted to be my friend, Lisa. I didn't stop her from organizing the relationship as a friendship, and I also didn't stop myself from getting a crush on her. Unlike Janet, Lisa didn't understand the rules well enough to know never to let the person profess sexual feelings, at least not definitively. Janet, you'll recall, wouldn't even allow the denial of such feelings. So my relationship with Lisa developed into a roller coaster of being her friend, letting my crush take advantage of me, hurting her with offers she couldn't accept, subtly, of course, I've never been that aggressive, then backing off and working back around to being, quote, just a good friend again, and, and then waiting for something more. During this period, the author, my high school pseudonym, wrote the following from a work called The Platonic Back Pocket. Has the L.A. situation something to do with dating Lisa? Has it recurred through a YBM disguise? This, I think, was you bitch Melissa. Some, some trouble she was having with her closest female friend. Possibly. You said yourself you were in trouble again. Do you mean it? If so, L.A. is recurring. But how? Surely you prevented it last time for good. Ah, but you blame this predicament upon her. Indeed, she has back-pocketed you. Something like being used, but in a nice, friendly way with a willing usee. She is smart enough to set you up, but would she? Probably not. So your allegation is explainable as an experience in handling a platonic relationship, and both of you are guilty. Chances are that you have misled yourself because you need someone. I meant that in a dating sense. And she's always been there. Thus, you lose restraint. But the problem is that you lose sight of all the others who could fill that need in the course of turning to her. Or, you've placed yourself in her back pocket, and she'd be foolish to remove you. After all, you're, you make her feel good. You're such a good friend. So you caught yourself in a losing race. You'll never win her because she'll never have you, but you won't accept that. So you approach her, hear her excuse, and prove it irrelevant. Then you fail to see the truth and all because you look at the excuse and not the reason it was made. So the whole thing starts again. You can shoot for it all, but you'll walk away with nothing because you don't have what you think you have to begin with. 
There I think I was referring to a good argument, but uh, I could have been talking about good looks. Who knows? I wasn't that self-confident, and Lisa wasn't quite the magazine cover girl that Janet was. Platonic loses strength as the relationship grows closer because all natural friendship is soon replaced by physical, emotional, and sexual attractions. And now it's too close again. So don't let situations involving her get on the list in any way, since that is how this L.A. situation works against you. That's from the author's folder, Situations, YBA, and Life in the Big City, written mostly in 1980. That would probably be freshman and sophomore year in high school. While I understand the points I was making, I won't deny that this is a very immature point of view. I regret not only the fact that the author was wrong in 1980, and would have to learn the error of his logic the hard way through Q's mistrust in 1982, but I also regret what I must have done to Lisa. I probably cried some nights after Julie from the movie theater's dreams because it forced me to admit that I'd put Lisa in a a much more demanding and guilt-arousing situation and position when I was a high school sophomore. Even with my brackets throughout the essay, I did nothing to point out the two big logical flaws. First, at the end when I mentioned I was keeping situations involving L.A. off my situation list, I failed to recognize that the problem was having L.A. on the list in the first place and not any of the sub-situations I was trying to comment on. Second, I missed the role of sexual feelings within a friendship altogether. The second flaw is more fundamental, and I only came to understand the right answer this year. This was 1988. (laughs) Sexual feelings are not a problem that needs to be fixed by staying away from the person until they blow over. For starters, it is easier for the mind to fantasize manipulatively, psychosexual nightmares as I've called it, if you don't have to face the person hours later. More importantly, those sexual feelings, or even just flat-out warm, nice, I'll take you to the prom if no one else wants to because I think you are special, kinds of feelings form an alternative cost. They are the collateral that demands extra investment in an intersexual friendship. If you can honestly deal with facing another person's beauty and retain a friendship, then you will hold a much greater dividend down the line. You'll be a better friend, if only because you could objectively tell somebody who wants to date your friend that she's a good catch. There's nothing like the feeling of honesty and decency that overcame me when I told Greg that Spider was cute because I knew I was saying it for the right reasons. I wasn't telling him something just for her sake. I wasn't saying it because I was committed to the idea for my own sake. I was saying it because it was true. Truth. That kind of truth, real truth, doesn't come around that often, even for the most honest people. So what's the key to this animatic relationship with Spider? To answer the Janet question... How can it work if I let Spider read a document that clearly states in places that she is objectively attractive? Simple. All those like feelings, including what Freud would call repressed sexual feelings, form a collateral. I don't cash that in. It would be wrong to act on those feelings, that collateral, just like it would be wrong to get a loan based on ownership of a house and then just give the house away. I love Spider. Therefore, I won't defraud her with feelings. We have a definition problem from my first essay about what I called then limbo men. They aren't the complete stranger who happens to look good. They're the person you feel you know, but haven't made a commitment with. Theoretically, you once made a commitment with Mark, if only because you slept in the same bed while on a platonic journey through the old world. But you must understand that the commitment you once had, at least through implication, was broken when you decided you wanted to be, quote, more than friends, unquote. He is now a good example of a limbo man, neither friend animatically, nor lover. 
I'm sorry you've had so many bad experiences with these acquaintances. I don't know why you, and at times, I, have had to learn lessons the hard way. Part of the trouble is California. It's not too shocking to hear that these guys acted in such an immature way with you. California is known for, fairly or not, a perceived childishness. The area you live in is also known for AIDS. And your point about the dangers and foolishness of modern sexual conquest is very well made. When I argue with moderns about intersexual friendship and sacredness, the argument using homosexuality that I've used with my family often doesn't work. Many modern thinkers take a very bisexual approach, and even their same-sex friends cannot consider themselves safe from sexual aggression. With them, I break from the direction I took with you and push commitment. Even the guerrilla leaders in the sexual revolution now must admit that AIDS gives commitment a shine it lacked a couple decades ago. Intersexual friendship is a concept they, they should embrace, if only because it helps those out of practice with commitment restructure their lives without immediately slashing sexual freedoms. Moderns need to see the dangers of casual sex, except that they can't fuck everybody and start kicking some people out of their psychological sack. If they start by using self-love and self-awareness and picking people who have the potential to become intersexual friends, then even the most promiscuous person will find himself and herself on the right track. In your letter, you argue the fact that Mark is still your friend. I agree. Julie from the movie theater is still my friend. Lisa still considers me to be her friend, and the feeling is mutual. I was invited to her wedding, in fact. Our disagreement stems from the widespread use of the term friend. We're still using two different definitions at least. So I'll thrust Carl Jung's term back in here. Mark is your friend, but he is not an animatic friend, like Spider is. Mark cannot be animus because of your desires and your commitment to act on those desires. To say he is this type of friend would be to simultaneously admit that you want to fuck yourself. On the matter of sleeping arrangements, our society's tendency to water down rhetoric has caused some problems here. The culprit is the phrase, sleeping together. Be sure and understand that sleeping in the same bed does not mean sleeping together. I know that it's very clear to you, maybe painfully clear to you, but you realize in such a circumstance, sleeping in the same bed does not entitle you to anything. To present a more shocking uh, kind of a analogy, there are radical conservatives in this country who would tell me that I am morally entitled to rape Spider if she lets me stay overnight in the same building with her, let alone the same room. That's not right. We all know that's not right. But that outlook from those who don't believe date rape is criminal... Well, my point is, a friend sleeping in the same bed is not the same thing as a lover sleeping in the same bed because of the intentions. Therefore, if what I'm saying is false, you can't trust your friends, you can't trust yourself, and therefore you can't trust anyone. Welcome to the Second Dark Age. The persistent trouble we have in finding a compromise for this more-than-friendship rhetoric shows that you don't have the exact word for your point of view of a relationship either. Expressions like very, like, more than are grammatical indicators that an imprecise or incorrect expression is being used. You see, I could use the more than a friendship phrase too. Spider and I have more than a friendship. Now we have an animatic relationship. We haven't added sex though, like your version of more. We've added the very epitome of brotherly love. The mean, unrelenting, debate-monger in me wants to suggest that you use more than because you were embarrassed by the underlying fact that you were escalating sex to such an exalted position. 
The little man on my shoulder suggested more that as a defense mechanism that allows people to pretend that they aren't really fucking their friends after all, which is what it all boils down to. However, I told that side of my brain that I wouldn't try this argument, I wouldn't use it at all, and it looks like I blew it. Sorry. Your example about Richard Bach's relationship was a good one. You may be able to anticipate my reply, but I'm not going to be as dogmatic as I was in 1986. The reply. There was something wrong with Bach's platonic commitment that he initially failed to recognize. Luckily, he saw the problem and corrected it and is now living happily ever after in a dating marital relationship. I say he was lucky because it is dangerous to not recognize the types of relationships you're in. People get hurt. From the very beginning, Bach had a sexual attraction. And to prove me wrong on this point, you will have to refute the entire framework for Western psychological thought. Attraction, in a dating marital sense, was the formative key to the relationship, and both of them missed it. If they hadn't corrected the problem, the friendship would have fallen apart over time, and the relationship would have crumbled too. The icing on the cake is that the marriage really got a head start on most. The box already learned to be friends, which is half the ingredients, at least, of a marriage anyway. You see, I don't deny friendship or their ability to move from a certain brotherly love to like to marital love, but their relationship was never animatic. It was, and if it was, then their marriage is doomed to crumble eventually because people who marry themselves end up surprise, surprise, very alone. And that is the connotation I intend when I talk about anima and animus. I'm talking about a reflection of your soul, and I mean it the same way I mean it when I say that Spider and I could be the same person. Having spoken bluntly about sexual feelings throughout this essay, I want to make a clarification. In my references to physical attributes, I'm not talking about being wildly attracted, (laughs) as you put it, or stunned, as I have put it in the past. I know the difference because I've been stunned before. Maybe you'll remember the stories Glenn and I used to tell about a buxom blonde we nicknamed Twin Eye Beam. From an inappropriate conversations perspective, I'm pretty sure that story was told fully in inappropriate conversations number 71. I'm going to guess going back to October of 2011, somewhere in that ballpark. I called the episode Struts. But Twin Eye Beam was stunning. Knowing that, I never for a moment even entertained the notion of being her friend in any purified sense. In fact, if I-Beam had come to me with a problem, needing a friend, I would have found someone else to help her and befriend her because I just wouldn't feel qualified to help somebody about whom I'd had such an initial sexual attraction. And I mean that, and it makes a very strong testimonial for sacredness within friendship. While making a conscious effort to permit enough vulnerability to allow my feelings to show this time, I ended up answering or trying to answer some tougher questions that you really didn't come out and ask. First, here's one you did ask. Can an animatic relationship form within the same sex? Okay, you didn't word it that way, but I think that's what you meant. Young would say that anima and animus is always the opposite sex, and all my personal experience agrees with him. But that aside, I don't have an answer to how homosexuals perceive their souls. I mean, what is the opposite sex? It can be biological... But it also can be preferential sex. The opposite sex would be the one you are sexually attracted to, meaning bisexuals have no same sex at all. I mean, you see the problems that develop. I don't have these contradictions resolved in my head at this time, and it may be a flaw in my theories. On the other hand, I do know what to tell you about mother-daughter intuition. Relationships within biological families, particularly surrounding mothers, are symbiotic. Symbiosis also applies to husband-wife relationships. Often at times, true empathy, like 
knowing when someone's in need, does arise in symbiotic relationships. That may stem from years of conditioning and the fact that you really do know everything about these people. The difference between symbiosis and, and anima animus is not the phenomenon, but the source. Symbiosis is somewhat more environmental, developing from years of adaptation and response. Animatic relationships develop more directly from a metaphysical concept of soul, which must be considered instinctive, I think. Is all this easy for me? Well, I try to make it appear that I go with the flow, but I've, I've had to make some hard decisions and sacrifices. There have been tears because of the vulnerability that this kind of relationship places me in. But I haven't had any real choice in my actions, and that may be what makes things appear easy. By no choice, I mean, knowing Spider is anima is with me for the rest of my life. Sure, I could have chosen to do nothing about it, but I doubt I would have found the strength to let another cue slip out of my life without knowing she was loved. What if Spider suddenly changed her view of the relationship in the same manner that you shifted on Mark? Tough question. I'm going to start a new paragraph. I would cry. I know that sounds dumb, but it's true. I would probably cry for a long time. After that, I don't know. Maybe the crying is just a defense mechanism to prevent me from knowing what I'd be motivated to do. I don't know. Either way, that doesn't disguise the fact that I'd be very sad. Now, same question. Only, what if Cheryl didn't exist? Dirty, dirty question. I'm glad you didn't ask it. I don't know because that's impossible to me. Um, even though I'm pretty sure I'm pretty good at seeing into possible worlds, this one may be just too cloudy. Still, the question calls attention to how I would respond with Cheryl. I'd put distance between me and Spider. And at all costs, I would do that. I wouldn't violate my commitment with Cheryl if only because it would be foolish to let two relationships go to hell at once. Anyway, it has to be pretty obvious I prefer Cheryl as my wife, and you can bet I wouldn't change a thing. But if Cheryl didn't exist... I can't say for sure I wouldn't engage in a borderline sexual experience with Spider if she denied the friendship. It might just be a reflex reaction. Nevertheless, I wouldn't be proud of that reaction. I have reason to believe that a non-friendship, or as you might call it, a more-than-friendship, depending on your point of view, with someone who was perceived as anima would only fall apart in an ugly way. I guess the reason my answers to the questions in this section aren't strong is because it's not possible for me to put myself in that frame of mind. My love for Spider arouses Janet rules that won't even allow me to imagine her as anything other than anima, and if she's not, then I don't know what she is, and I don't know how I'd respond. I guess my big point, if I have a big point, is that even at my emotionally weakest state, I love. Love is the basis for these commitments. I've made decisions through this love, and that has a magical way of making everything right. I just don't feel sexual aggression towards Spider like I would towards someone like Twin Eye Beam. It is not something that develops naturally from love. After all, love is not a matter of your hormones getting the best of you, even in a pure sexual revolutionary sense. Love is more like a decision. This point of view leaves you room to disagree with me, but your response will have to answer some questions on your side, Sean. Can bisexuals have friends if sexual attractiveness can naturally negate the purity of any friendship? I don't think you can say that they do if you disagree with me. You'd have to say that bisexuals are stuck with a number of developing sexual attractions and a few ugly people that they also happen to be nice to. Also, what about brothers and sisters? The biological argument will only carry you so far because of the twist thrown in by stepbrothers and stepsisters. 
If animatic and symbiotic love cannot be sacred in the manner I suggest, then you'd have to argue that all siblings who truly love each other just really want to fuck. I don't buy that argument. I'd say they have a completely different kind of commitment. Likewise, Spider and I have a completely different kind of commitment. And I love her. I love her for the right reasons. I guess that means we have more than a friendship. Okay, so when you read a five or six page essay, follow that up with a 27 page essay. I guess I should have been able to predict a little bit more accurately that this was going to turn into one of the longer inappropriate conversations in the history of the show. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with this particular episode posing a bit of a, a challenge or a hurdle to listeners because it is so personal. If you know me or if you share my my thoughts or my feelings or my theories about friendship between genders and, and all of that, then the hill is probably not too, too high to climb. But if the hill is too high to climb for some, then that's okay. Um, it's not for everybody. wasn't intended to be. Every time I've done a show like this where the topic has been very dense, very thick, I've tried to do something to segregate better the different drummer segment. I didn't put Alan Parker, the English film director, right into the middle of this episode, and I could have done it. I could have woven him in right in between the two essays. Thought I might have, probably, at one point in time. But again, because of the, the, the denseness or the thickness of the material, I'm sticking the different drummer at the very end. I said so right from the start. I think it makes it easier for someone who says, you know what, all I really care about is what Greg thinks about the English film director, Alan Parker. Well, here we go. We've hit the different drummer segment. And it ties in in a very direct way, maybe more direct than you'd think. Because Inappropriate Conversations 90, Moments of Epiphany, released in May of 2012, was the rest of the story that I left dangling and hanging at the end of Inappropriate Conversations 79. I kind of got all the way to the point of my high school experience, approaching the person that I've decided to nickname Q, and finally have that conversation with her. And at the end of, of uh, podcast number 79, I stopped the story abruptly and didn't pick it up again until a few months later in Inappropriate Conversations 90. What does all this or any of this have to do with Alan Parker? Well, it's all about the movie Fame. My different drummer back then was Paul McCrane, the actor who played Morty in Fame and who both wrote and performed the song Is It Okay If I Call You Mine? And that song sort of connecting with my emotional feelings at the point of having a friendship rejected in a very blunt way. But... I was wrestling even at the time with whether my different drummer should be Paul McCrane, the actor and songwriter, or Alan Parker, the director of the movie. And I think I made the right decision back then in focusing on the song and focusing on McCrane. But it also occurred to me even all those years ago that at some point Alan Parker was at least worthy of a nod as a different drummer, and perhaps worthy as a nod for nothing more than the movie Fame. I'm going to explode it and take it a little bit beyond there. And I think for anybody who is... Uh, shared my cinematic history, who's watched the same movies at roughly the same times I have in my life, will probably see the same things I'm seeing and kind of note that, you know, maybe we don't take this director, Alan Parker, as seriously as we should. Sir Alan William Parker, CBE, is an English film director, producer, and screenwriter. Parker's early career, beginning in his late teens, was spent as a copywriter and director of television advertisements. 
After about 10 years of filming adverts, many of which won awards for creativity, he began screenwriting and directing films. Parker is noted for having a wide range of filmmaking styles and working within different genres. He has directed musicals, including Bugsy Malone, Fame, Pink Floyd the Wall, and The Commitments, and Evita. True story dramas, including Midnight Express, Mississippi Burning, Come See the Paradise, and Angela's Ashes. And family dramas, including Shoot the Moon, not to mention horrors and thrillers like Angel Heart. Um, they've kind of stolen my fire a little bit by the Wikipedia entry going through his uh, film history in such a way. I want to hit the film history again a little bit more chronologically than by genre. But to finish up my uh, reference to uh, Wikipedia, says this. His films have won 19 BAFTA Awards, 10 Golden Globes, and 6 Academy Awards. Parker was appointed Commander of the Order of the British Empire for his services to the British film industry and knighted in 2002. He has been active in both British and American cinema, along with being a founding member of the Directors Guild of Great Britain and lecturing at various film schools. In 2013, he received the BAFTA Academy of Fellowship Award, the highest honor of the British Film Academy. And Parker has donated his personal archive to the British Film Institute's National Archive. He did that in 2015. When you watch the films of Alan Parker, you get a sense that maybe there was some sort of a connection between the fact that he had grown up directing uh, advertisements, that there's something about the way ads are put together that really feeds into the role that film editing plays in his craft. I am a sucker for a great film edit. It's the kind of things that most people don't notice, and that's good because when the film editing job is done well, it isn't necessarily all that noticeable. But because I tend to be looking for it, I tend to find it, and that's one of the things that is a hallmark of Parker's work. Uh, Parker did have a quote, also shared here on Wikipedia, that deals with sort of his years of writing and, and directing advertisements and how it may have played into becoming a film director. Quoting Parker, Looking back, I came from a generation of filmmakers who couldn't really have started anywhere but commercials because we had no film industry in the United Kingdom at the time. People like Rid Ridley Scott, Tony Scott, Adrian Lyne, Hugh Hudson, and myself. So commercials proved to be incredibly important. The other thing that I would say has proved to be really incredibly important from that perspective of that quote is that during this period of time when Parker, Ridley Scott, and others were actively creating the film industry in Britain, it went from being almost non-existent outside of truly a studio system to becoming what it is today. Uh, movies made in Great Britain by British directors are often a force from an international perspective, and that was not always true. First time I heard the name Alan Parker was probably an Academy Award presentation, a telecast in 1979, where his 1978 film, Midnight Express, was getting nominations but not a ton of awards. Fair enough. But I had heard his name before and was familiar with him when, a year or so later, the movie Fame came out. I did not initially connect Alan Parker with Fame with Midnight Express, but it didn't take long for me to do so. Probably by the end of 1981, early 1982, I was quite aware that Alan Parker was a film director who had seemingly come out of nowhere from an American uh, perspective to make a couple of really good films. And when Shoot the Moon was released in 1982, I was first in line to see it. I'm not sure that this high school kid who wanted to be a film critic one day was quite ready for the, the heaviness of the emotional drama of a marriage falling apart in an ugly way, starring, among others, Albert Finney. 
Giving a nod to Alan Parker gives me a chance also to give a nod to the recently deceased and, in my opinion, great actor, Albert Finney. But I nevertheless was, again, first in line to see Shoot the Moon. If you talk about Parker's films during this period in succession, you've got Midnight Express followed by Fame, Shoot the Moon, Pink Floyd the Wall, Birdie, Angel Heart, Mississippi Burning, Come See the Paradise, The Commitments, The Road to Wellville, Evita, and then... Angela's Ashes, his last film, 2003, was The Life of David Gale. But if you leave that one out and just bookend from Angela's Ashes at the end of the 90s to Midnight Express at the end of the 70s, this is a very impressive resume, with far more hits than misses, although some misses, and even the films that, in my opinion, do not elevate to the state of greatness, often remain consistently interesting. Um, I don't know that Birdie is a movie from 1984... um, the Matthew Modine Nicholas Cage vehicle. I don't know that I could watch that every other year, but I will watch it again in my life. It's on my list of films I definitely want to revisit at different ages and different levels of maturity in my life. Angel Heart, uh, absolutely not the best horror film ever made, but a very fun, neo-surreal horror film all the same. So the quality of Parker's work, consistently good, better than you'd expect from maybe an advertising man if you were to view that in a more negative way than I have so far in this different drummer segment, and a variety of actors and actresses who have appeared throughout. Uh, He's not the kind of director who's put together some sort of an ensemble, sort of in an Ingmar Bergman kind of way, or Michelangelo Antonioni, continuing to have the same people appearing in your films over and over again. He's had a great deal of variety, and although I would probably have to, for sentimental reasons, for inappropriate conversations, 90 reasons, have to call out fame as my favorite. I want to end this episode with a particular emphasis on the movie Shoot the Moon. Shoot the Moon currently IMDb gets a straight 7.0 score. That feels pretty fair to me. It's not it's not A material, but it's also not B minus material either. It's it's somewhere in that A B range, in my opinion. A 15-year marriage dissolves, leaving both the husband and the wife and their four children devastated. He's preoccupied with a career and a mistress, she with a career and caring for four young children. While they attempt to go their separate ways, jealousy and bitterness reconnect them. It's an incredibly down movie, but it's a down movie with an interesting and challenging performance by Albert Finney. I would be uh, okay and comfortable if people think of and remember Albert Finney from movies more recent, like the Bond film Skyfall, or his uh, the Bourne movies that he appeared in. Um, even, you know, an uncredited role in Ocean's 12 would do. For most people, I don't think they come up with his name first and foremost for Big Fish. I haven't seen Big Fish, but I intend to see Big Fish. I intend to see the movie at some point because the musical was brought to my attention by the Satyr's Fear podcast through a song called Fight the Dragons. So Big Fish is on my list. No, I think most people, at least most people like me, probably think more of Albert Finney from things like Traffic or Aaron Brockovich. Miller's Crossing, perhaps earlier on, uh, The Dresser, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award, Under the Volcano, Annie, those types of things. But I look at his filmography from beginning to end, I think that I was perhaps aware of an art house film called Alpha Beta that he both produced and acted in in 1974, or Murder on the Orient Express from 1974, although I did not get to see that in movie theaters, or even, frankly, even since. I think Shoot the Moon is the first time I ever saw Albert Finney act on screen. That, 
or one of the Christmas adaptations of A Christmas Carol in uh, his, his performance in the Scrooge role. It's one of those two, right? Meaning that I'm willing to tell myself that Shoot the Moon, through our different drummer Alan Parker, is how I got introduced to Albert Finney and took an interest in his career ever since. Another nod I'll make to Finney as I close out this is that there's enough similarity between Shoot the Moon, a major international theatrical release, and Alpha Beta, the 1974 film that was almost a filmed play, a a two-actor performance, for want of a better word, with Rachel Roberts and Albert Finney really dominating the screen time. Those two have enough in common in the sense of them being a drama about marital problems that it's just fascinating to me that at it, it, a pre-20-something age, I was taking interest in these topics and taking interest in these topics because of the performances of people like Albert Finney and the direction of people like our different drummer, Alan Parker. I think maybe one of the things that happens to me is that if I'm only recording once a month, it may be a little harder for me to be tight and focused and stick within the less than an hour target that I always have set for myself. This is a bit of an explosion of thoughts and ideas. And this time, of course, I kind of should have known it because it was all written down, or at least most of it was written down. I just, I guess I would say I deeply admire the kind of people who can do something in a very short form in an almost daily way. Here lately, Adam Burns, whose Geeky Gay podcast has been recapping summer travels, vacations, and other things, has been on an almost daily basis in 15 minutes or less, usually, in terms of format. And I tend to binge listen because my attention span does get pretty long. It's just impressive to me that he has the ability to start and stop an idea in that manner. Uh, Big Fatty Online, another one of the Pride 48 podcasts, similar thing, 20 minutes a day almost every day of the week, except for the weekends. And I just don't know that I have the ability to be so concise. Part of that is that I'm not genuinely a personal journal podcast, despite the personal storytelling that's inherent in this particular topic, this go-round. The thing is, I usually try to dive pretty deeply in, challenge myself, and see if I can somehow swim out of a topic and make it back to the surface before it's all said and done. It often takes me well over a half an hour to get that accomplished. This time, maybe it's going to be well over an hour and a half. All the same, I appreciate those who stuck with me to the end. And I appreciate people like uh, Adam Burns and Taylor Rodan and Taffy from the uh, Pot is My Co-Pilot podcast, and Big Fatty. It is my hope to see them all this year in August in New Orleans. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.